All right. Well, if you've heard me preach a time or two, you do know I like to do a little bit of an introduction. This time there might be a little bit more than a little bit. Bear with me. We will be in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, you can start turning there. If not, don't worry, we'll have it on the screen in a moment. Um, But I just want to, by way of introduction, let you know, obviously, Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, so named for its author. Now, some scholars attribute Nehemiah as the autobiographical author, that he was the one that wrote it. But what actually has probably likely happened is that Nehemiah's memoirs were used, that is, his journaling of his time uh, rebuilding the wall and taking care of that area of Judah and Jerusalem. He wrote all that stuff down, and his memoirs were used to write the book by Ezra. The book follows chronologically in order from Nehemiah's first term as governor in about 445 to 423 B.C., and that's Nehemiah chapters 1 through 12, to his second term, perhaps beginning in 424 B.C., that's Nehemiah 13. Israel may not know, but Israel was reeling from a time of detrimental crisis under the judgment administered by God on their account because of their repeated rebellion. Moses warns the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 15 through 68, it's a lot of verses, that if they do not keep the Lord's commandments, they will perish by their enemies and become a derision to the nations. God said he would bring nations against them and send them into exile. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came and were used by God to bring about this judgment that Moses had warned them about, as did other various Old Testament prophets. Assyria deported the ten northern tribes and scattered them all throughout the known world. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And that was about between 605 to 586 B.C. God again called on Assyria to destroy Jerusalem. That's in 2 Kings 25. Due to Judah's persistent unfaithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant goes way back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, around 24 B.C. And just by way of concession, I didn't know this until I started studying it, but B.C. we count down, A.D. we count up, if, in case you're wondering. But here's the Abrahamic covenant that I want to refer to in Genesis 18 just to help us understand. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? The Lord's getting ready to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Since Abraham will be, surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. It's the covenant. Obey and keep the Lord's commandments, so that I may bring about what I've commanded. God chose Abraham, and through him the nation of Israel, which came through Abraham's grandson Jacob, who God later renamed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons that were the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. God made covenantal promises, that is, these promises that were basically contractual in agreement, which culminate in Christ. He also made promises of judgment, should his people forsake the covenant and go after other gods and live a life of wickedness instead of holiness to God as he commanded. So God brings back the Assyrians the second time to administer more judgment upon his people. And this time, Assyria almost depopulated the entire city of Jerusalem. 
The Israelites faced 70 years in captivity. Jeremiah 25, 11 says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. I wonder if Jeremiah was prophesying about us or this land today, what he might have to say. That's just some food for thought. So then God institutes a change in world leadership. See, the book of Daniel tells us that it's God who sets up kings and authorities and rulers, and God who brings them down and changes them. God is the one that sets it up. So God takes the, the world leadership reigns from Babylon and gives them to the Persians in about 539 B.C. And during the reign of the Persian kings, Israel, which was in exile, experienced three different return trips to Jerusalem. They began in 539 B.C. when Cyrus sent God's people back to actually build the house. This is a pagan god. God must be in control if he stirs the heart of a pagan king, excuse me, to send God's people back to build his temple. The book of Ezra, which comes before Nehemiah, tells us in the first six chapters that it was Zerubbabel and Joshua that led the first return of exiles and rebuilt the temple of God. Now, it's not to be confused with Joshua, the son of Nun, who took over from Moses. Just as we do nowadays, they reuse names. I mean, you got Bob Jones and Tom Smith are very popular. Joshua, Judas, all those names were very popular in the old day. In fact, when I was in high school in English class, I had, they had five Joshuas in the same class. I mean, they just started pointing and calling us by our last name. But, so it's not just not to be confused with Joshua, the son of Nun. So Ezra... That was the first six chapters. 7 through 10 recounts the second return, and Ezra himself led that return. So now we're in the return, second return, and that was in 458 B.C. Nehemiah chronicles the third return, which was approximately 445 B.C. Now, you may be wondering, why all the dates, why all the information, Pastor? I know it can be a lot, but I want to show you the historical order of events that led up to Nehemiah's time in Jerusalem because as I've said before if we don't understand how a verse a chapter or a book fits into the entirety of the Bible and God's covenant then we can't rightly understand it interpret it and apply it to our own lives and so that's why we're doing this so we finally make it to Nehemiah the book of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah's brother bringing to him a negative report of Jerusalem and the people not that they were you know, like negative, oh, you'll never believe what they're doing, Nehemiah. It was very painful, broken down, burned down. People are just, it was bad. That's in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's interesting, though, that Nehemiah has never even been to his homeland in Jerusalem. He really knows nothing about it other than what his brother and some of the men of Israel come to him and tell him. He was born in captivity in the Persian Empire. And keep that in mind because it's important. So Nehemiah is in, the, in Susa, which means lily. It's the winter capital of the Persian Empire. Now apparently they also had vacation homes where they would go one place where it was cooler when it was real hot where they came from or vice versa. And so here Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I and was favored and respected in the court of the highest world power at the time. That's a pretty big deal. But he receives this unfavorable report from his brother and some of the other men of the ill fate of his home and the people of God. And immediately, he prays and fasts. Steve likes to say, we pray fast. Right? We know how to pray fast, but do we pray? 
Some scholars suggest that Nehemiah, and if you look at the book, it's hard to interpret unless you know all those things. That's why I appeal to scholars. Suggest he prayed and fasted for three to four months before he ever even went before the king with his burden. Nehemiah petitions God night and day for his people and the state of Jerusalem, the holy city. He does this by acknowledging, and this is important, he acknowledges the covenant God made with his people and that they have broken that covenant as well as God's just actions in sending them into judgment against their sin. Nehemiah knows God's word. He knows they have broken God's law and that God is bringing judgment upon his people because of that. And here's a little plug of premature application. Nehemiah would not have known these things unless he was brought up in them. He was in exile, born in captivity, yet he knew all of these things about God, his people, the covenant, all of those things, which suggests he was brought up and educated by family, friends of the Lord. After much weeping, prayer, and fasting, the king can sense something's not right with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer, as I said, and for him to appear sad or distraught, maybe even nervous, shaky hand, handing the cup to the king, would appear to the king that he was up to no good. Because if somebody worked for you and their job was to make sure nobody poisoned you by drink or by food, and they come to you sad looking or just upset and they're shaking and trying to hand you a cup, you would probably think immediately, I'm not drinking that, that's poison. But that's what Nehemiah's job was. So the, he, he looks sad, distraught, the king questions him. Nehemiah, what's wrong with your face? It's sad. Nehemiah mentions that he had not been sad before the king, and for good reason, as I've just explained. It's likely, though, that the few months of his prayer and fasting and weeping caught up with him and was starting to affect his physical appearance. And so the king probably noticed eyes sunken in, cheeks sunken in, not eating, looks kind of frail. Nehemiah, what's the problem? And then king notices and asks him about it. And so now we're finally to chapter 2 in Nehemiah. After all that, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 11, uh, I'm sorry, 2 through 3. So the king said to him, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Sounds like a pretty smart guy. This, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And I apologize. That's actually not our scripture reference this morning. We're going to get to that, I promise. Nehemiah expressed fear with the king's inquiry for the same reason I just said. He was bringing him his cup and his food, and for him to appear that way was dangerous. Persian kings were notorious for spilling blood, even those that were related to them. In fact, they do it just to get the throne. And Artaxerxes I was no exception, so Nehemiah's request could have been seen as rebellion or displeasure for the king since Artaxerxes I was actually the one that put a stop to the building back 10 to 12 years ago when Ezra was building. However, what Nehemiah remembers is that ancestral burial sites were highly 
respected in the ancient Near East. And so he exercises wisdom in presenting his case to the king in a way that favors sympathy from Artaxerxes. And as God would have it, Nehemiah was raised up for just such a time as this and found favor before the king. In fact, Artaxerxes granted him all his requests. He even gave him official letters to be used for safe passage through the province, a letter to ensure Nehemiah would be able to receive timber from the, the king's forest, which was a big deal. I mean, he gave him all this stuff. It'd be like going to the president and saying, hey, I need some papers and favor, and he's just like, sure, no problem. Maybe that was a bad reference, I'm sorry. The idea is the world power at the time, and he gave Nehemiah all this favor. It's a big deal, and I don't want you to miss it. You need to understand, I need to understand what prayer, fasting, and weeping for God's glory can achieve. And that was the primary purpose, and should always be the primary purpose for God's people in seeking to do anything is God's glory. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, as I said, which meant he obviously had a knack for administration. He probably had an impeccable character. You don't just ask anybody to be sure you don't get poisoned. You have to know that person. You have to trust that person. And so the first thing that we could probably learn from him was that it was a big job. I mean, he really was a person of impeccable character. But the second thing he did or requested was to leave his post, to leave his job. Who's going to make sure the king's not poisoned now, Nehemiah? He wanted to leave the king and queen and go rebuild Jerusalem. But not only does the king grant his request, he gives him, like I said, letters of commendation and all kinds of support. He even gives Nehemiah some army to go with him and horsemen. He has a whole entourage. And if you're familiar with Nehemiah, you'll recall that almost immediately... When the governors of Samaria, Ammon, and Arabia heard that someone was seeking the welfare of the sons of Israel, they immediately sought to create multitudinous problems for God's people. In fact, that's in verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They were upset. And Sanballat, as I said, was the governor of Samaria, probably the ringleader there's always one that leads the charge against God's people and everybody else just kind of follows along because it's beneficial. Tobiah was the Persian governor. In fact, it's interesting too because the Ammonites, where Tobiah was a governor, was descendants of somebody who came from Lot, Abraham's nephew. How's that for family struggles? Cousins against cousins. These guys were likely frustrated, though, that Nehemiah was there because without a governor in Jerusalem, they were the ones that got to run the show. They got to line their pockets. They got to get people to do what they wanted. But now Nehemiah is there seeking the welfare of Jerusalem, and they don't like it. Plus, building up Jerusalem to them would have seemed like a military threat. They didn't like that either. They figured they would have to put a stop to this project just like they did when Ezra was rebuilding. Oh, that's right. These are the same fools who sent the letters to Artaxerxes when Ezra was building. They claimed he was rebelling against Persia, and so the king stopped it. They're going to threaten Nehemiah with the same stuff. Nevertheless, he arrives at Jerusalem, begins a massive project God placed on his heart. And here is where we finally pick up our scripture <laughs> in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read 11 through 20. If you have your Bible, great. If not, it should be on the screen for you. Chapter 11. 
So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out by night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. Verse 15. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had as I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in? That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the grace and the mercy you've shown us in not only um, giving us your word and creation, but, Lord, manifesting your covenant faithfulness and its fullness in the body, work, and person of Jesus Christ. We ask today, Lord, that uh, you would just... um, Take these words and these feeble lips, Father, and that you would use them to your glory and to your honor. And we ask this in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. So the first thing I want us to look at here is the work of God. Oh, by the way, this sermon I entitled, The Work of God by the People of God for the Glory of God Despite the Enemies of God. And so the first thing I want to look at here is the work of God requires rest. And he says in verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now, where Nehemiah was coming from was far off. It probably would have taken him approximately two months. And the first thing he does is rest. Before even assessing the project, looking at the walls, introductions, before he says, Hey guys, I'm the new governor. Let, Let me go meet everybody and shake hands and kiss babies. No, he rested. He finds time to rest and recuperate before beginning God's work. This seems to be one thing we don't typically do or even know how to nowadays. I know I don't do it as much as I should. I guarantee you the last time I fully rested was probably May, at least. But Nehemiah rested. If I don't, likely you don't either. We don't seem to like to rest in America because it means we have to be idle. We have to be quiet. We have to not be listening to music, watching TV, reading a book. We just have to be in the presence of God. We need to take time to unplug and unwind, and that sounds like such a waste of time, doesn't it? I always say, man, if I could just figure out a way where I didn't need sleep, I'd had eight more hours in the day to get stuff done. But if you've ever met me without sleep, you'll know that's a bad idea. But we forget 
I think, as God's people, how prominent rest is in Scripture. The book of Exodus says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or the sojourner or the person hanging out with you who stays with you. Why, God? Why do we have to rest? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. For Israel, this was a reminder. It's a reminder for us too in Christ, but this was a reminder for them that they were saved out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and God called them to rest in His covenant. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and outstretched arms. Therefore, for this reason, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, modern science, and when I say modern science, I mean you have a theory, you do some tests, you get an, or, or, or an end result, Modern science says that rest is both necessary and a blessing. Now, we didn't need modern science to tell us that. We humans know that we need rest. But it is. I mean, the right amount of rest produces productivity and increases joy. I mean, who, who's, like, who's going, oh yeah, that makes sense. No one does a good job when they're fatigued. Judgment is impaired. Our effectiveness and efficiency suffers and we're cranky. Nobody wants to be cranky. Some people like to be cranky, I don't know. They say a tired person, a tired person that doesn't have the right amount of sleep, a fatigued person is the equivalent of a drunk driver. You think about that. And we don't take adequate time to rest before we seek to do the Lord's work. Nehemiah knows what he's taken on. He knows there's going to be problems. They've already came at him with problems, opposition, situations that require attention and focus. So instead of rushing right into the work and throwing some half-hearted uh, effort at it and hoping that it sticks, he takes a few days to rest. He wants to ensure that what he does for God is done with a clear mind so that he can give the best he has. And this is no less what God deserves because of his glory and holiness and his salvation he's given us, but it's also what he commands. If you're not giving God your best because you're worn out, chasing the world, or you think you can throw some half-hearted effort into experience or expecting him to accept it, you're mistaken. I'm mistaken. If you remember back in Genesis, Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. Abel's was accepted, Cain's wasn't. Why wasn't Cain's accepted? It said Abel brought the first portions, the fat portions, the best he had. And Cain was just like, here you go. That's what I got. It's the posture of our heart. Even if it's meager. Jesus said the woman that put in those two copper coins gave the most because she gave out of her poverty with a heart filled with joy to God. So it doesn't matter how much you give. It's a matter of what you're doing, how you're doing it. Are you doing it to just throw something out there and say, God, that's all I got? Or is your heart, you're giving your best regardless of how much it is, and you're doing it out of joy, expecting to serve God and God alone. Let me see if I can draw this out for you a bit. Um, if you have kids, maybe you don't. You just like watching animated movies. Sometimes I do. 
There was a movie that came out years ago called Cars. It's about race cars that talk, which is kind of weird. But uh, Lightning McQueen was a little race car, and he wants to get to the next destination so he can practice the track and he can win, right? Because that's what he's all about is winning. And his driver, Mac, you guessed it, was an 18-wheeler, and uh, wants to pull off and rest. And Lightning McQueen's like, no, man, we got to keep going. We got to get, we got work to do. We just got to go, go, go. Don't worry, I'll stay up with you. Well, Lightning falls asleep, and what happens to Mac? He falls asleep because he's fatigued and runs off the road. I mean, it's a simple children's movie, but here's the point. What happens when the people of God end up like Mac? What happens when we don't take adequate time to rest before we do the work of the Lord? If we, like Nehemiah, considered the work before us, we would drive ourselves so hard to the point of fatigue, or would we see the value in rest? Uh, this may be a bit of a stretch here, but, but stay with me. Do you spend so much time, effort, and energy chasing the things of this world only to flip into cruise control when you're called to do the work of the Lord? Or do you go ahead and do the work of the Lord and produce a shabby product, convincing yourself that God will be okay because at least you tried? How many times I've had to repent of that? How many times do we tell ourselves, God understands, I have all this other stuff to do? Let me say, God does understand, because He knows the work is hard, that this life is difficult because of sin and brokenness. But what he's not willing to accept is that you put everything before him. He's not willing that I would put everything before him. Nobody can do that and live a life that brings glory and honor to the Lord. And the point I'm trying to make here is that rest is important. If we're going to accomplish what the Lord would have for us, he expects our best because it's his glory at stake. And that's what Nehemiah tried to make a point of. God's glory is the most important thing at the end of the day. And none of us can seek his glory or do the work for him when we're worn out and fatigued from chasing other things. Like I said, it boils down to the condition and the posture of our heart toward God. We should be giving ourselves over to God and then whatever is left can go to the world. Give everything you have to the Lord and then say, oh, I guess now I'll go to work. Don't rush off into the world and do all those things and then say, oh, now I've got to do my devotion. It's the posture of our heart, and that's what Nehemiah understood. He also understood, we understand that Jesus, as New Testament believers, is our Sabbath. He's our rest. But are we resting in Him? Or are we trying to achieve on our own? You have to rest in Jesus. Jesus alone can save you. Not good works, not penance, not your mommy or daddy, but Christ alone can save you through the work he did. He's the fulfillment of the law that we could not fulfill, that you and I broke, that Israel broke repeatedly, we still break. But that does not excuse us from giving dedicated time to the Lord, resting in him, even if that means giving everything else away or up so that you can continue to do work for him that is pleasing and honoring and brings him glory. So, Nehemiah says you need to rest. I think we'd all go, amen. And then tomorrow we'll go, nah. Second thing, and we'll move quickly. 
So the work of God requires discretion, verse 12. Remember that Nehemiah was coming with a purpose. He was coming to build a wall. He had this great thing he was going to do for the Lord. And uh, he had received it from God. He knows he's already got opponents. They came at him right away. That's what God's enemies do. But he knows he must begin, he must begin well, because if he doesn't, then it's all going to fall apart. And notice that he only takes a few men with him, at, and at night no less. Have you ever tried to evaluate a situation or a project you're working on with everybody there asking you questions? <laughs> Probably not going to work out. And so this is just practical. You're going to go at night. Nobody knows what you're doing. Nobody knows where you are. You're going to evaluate the situation. You're going to be discreet about it. it. Discreet means to employ a cautious character. The old saying is, don't lay all your cards on the table. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Because he already knew there was opposition. He already knew people hate God. He was working for a world leader who was a pagan. Let me see if I can give you an illustration here. Everyone probably knows who Charles Chuck Colson is. Uh, he was employed in Richard Nixon's cabinet and part of the 12 men that faced prison time for Watergate. He said this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles that could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Here's the point I'm trying to make by using that quote from Colson, is that Nehemiah saw how important it was to exercise discretion in the work he was doing. If it, now, God's enemy doesn't normally just come through the door and say, hey, I hate God, I'm going to fight against you. But if they did, would you go, oh, well, let me tell you everything I'm about to do so you'll know where to stop me at every point. Nehemiah was exercising discretion because he knew there were people that were already opposing him. He was being wise and discreet. Sanbal and Tobiah had spies everywhere. But how can we apply Nehemiah's lessons to our life? Well, first of all, as God's people, we need to be sure, and this is the important part, we need to be sure we're the type of people that Nehemiah could take with him. Are we trustworthy? Are we dedicated to the Lord? Is that our purpose at the end of the day? Because a church full of godly, wise, and judicious people seeking to bring God glory is a truly dangerous force to the enemies of God. Thank you. That's right. Because if the church is not fighting unified under the headship of Jesus Christ, it won't matter. We will never impact society. We will never show love to the world in Jesus Christ if we're always doing the things that are opposite to being discreet, trustworthy, and God-honoring. And so Nehemiah says, you've got to rest, and you've got to be discreet. The third thing he shows us about the work of God is it requires inspection. We read that he went through every gate, inspecting the walls which were broken down and the gates which were burned by fire. He heard from his brother how bad the situation is. He fasted, wept, and prayed for months, took a long journey, rested, and now he goes out to see himself just how bad the situation is. And notice again that Nehemiah is being discreet. He goes out at night. He conducts a thorough inspection of the project he aims to take on. 
Sounds like a project manager you'd want working for your construction company. He sets out to examine exactly what will involve or be involved in the job. And the question going through his mind seems to be, seems to be, how bad is it? Is it really that bad? Is it really that destroyed? Are these people really in derision? He goes out at night, looks at all the city walls and various gates. He takes notes of the breaches, the damage, where the repairs need to begin. Nehemiah knows he must have isolation and focus without distractions or, or interruptions to, 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 to figure out how he's going to set about this project. He has an idea of how he's going to go about it, but he wants to get his knowledge in order to make sure he's proceeding properly. And the fact that Nehemiah seeks to assess the situa situation, take notes and build out a project plan, and have all the necessary information before addressing those who would do the work, is the character trait that makes him so successful in his leadership. What leader or boss or employer do you know that says, hey, we've got to do this new project and then just kind of walks away? You have to assess the situation. You have to say, okay, well, what, what, what do we need? What's the deliverable? What's the point? Who's working on it? Where are we supposed to start? That just makes good leadership. And the church is no different. Nehemiah did this so that he could take an evaluation of the situation and say, okay, now where am I going to lead these people to do the work? It's not haphazard. It's got method in its meticulous planning and proper assessment. I don't know much about physical building projects. Steve's worked with me or helped me with a few, and he'll tell you he knows nothing about them. He did teach me electrical, though, so that's cool. I could never understand that stuff, but I did used to be a network engineer, and a network engineer means you're still building something, you just can't see it. It's just a network with boxes and code. You want to say how one bit of information gets from here to there, how many stops it has to take, et cetera, et cetera. You're a network engineer. You have to build, you have to draw up a plan, you have to evaluate the various components, what stuff are they using, and then you build with code and wires. Occasionally, I could spend upwards of 12 hours on the phone with folks trying to resolve their problems because guess what? When your network is down and you make money on your network, you call the people who provide the switches and routers for you and you yell and scream until they fix it because you're losing money. But anyway, basically you have to understand what protocols, what services they're running and all that stuff. After checking many things over and over and over again and asking the customer, are you sure you didn't do this one thing? No, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Okay. Well, after eight hours, you finally decide to check for yourself 100%. And guess what? They did the thing. The point I'm trying to make is that if we don't plan, if we don't evaluate, if we don't stop and say, where is the church? Where are its people spiritually? What needs to happen to get to where we need to be? And we just kind of throw half-hearted effort at it? Nothing's going to stick. If God's glory is not the point at the end of the day, nothing's going to work. If we're not evaluating, if, if, if we're all moving in different directions, and I'm not just talking about Midway, but if you ever played tug-of-war, now imagine the church, which Jesus says over and over again, and God did in the Old Testament, is supposed to be unified but we're all pulling against each other because we're not seeking the same things, we're not planning, we're not evaluating, none of it's going to stick, none of it's going to matter. And people are going to stand outside the church, point and laugh and mock. 
Guess what? They're going to do that anyway. But why should there be reason for them to do that? Because we're not planning, seeking, evaluating, and trying to grow and bring God glory. If we spend more time evaluating the need, taking notes, checking for proverbial cracks in the spiritual walls, assessing the situation, and then executing a plan, nothing is overlooked. If we're willing to set aside, myself included, if we're willing to set aside pride, self-exaltation, and examine ourselves, the church, we can measure all of it against God's word making corrections where corrections need to be made. So Nehemiah says the work of God requires rest, discretion, inspection, and now the fourth thing is the people of God are not above the work of God. The people of God are not above the work of God. Nehemiah says in verse 16, the officials, the officials, they must have been pretty important, did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who did the work. Nehemiah has not told anyone in Jerusalem what he plans to do, nor what God has placed on his heart. Discreet. Now we talked about why this may have been. It's likely because he faced opposition and he didn't know who he could trust. Smart guy. But later in the book, you'll see that not only did he have forces on the outside, he had forces on the inside that were working for those people. But Nehemiah had not yet told anyone because he wished to exercise discretion and wanted to inspect the situation so that he could build a plan before enlisting the people. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul reminds New Testament believers that God gave various roles to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You and I are part of a body. The head is Jesus. If we're all not working for that end, we're not building up the body. And we're supposed to be being equipped for the work. Nehemiah had the expectation that the people of God would do the work of God for the building up of the kingdom of God. And this would be accomplished through the provision and sacrificial leaders who were willing to likewise engage in the work to be done. It's not just a top-down approach. This, this is not a pyramid scheme. Right, I say, oh, I got this great deal for you. You won't believe it. Just come here and let me tell you about it. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, sure, sure, sure. But let me tell you, it's not a pyramid scheme. Everybody does the work. Everybody. Nehemiah says, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. He includes everyone basically showing that no one is above the work of God. Also, notice that Nehemiah did not say those who would do the work or those who I pleaded with to do the work or who I begged to do the work, but he said, who did the work? Implying that the work of God was done by the people of God, no matter their status, role, or skill set. I cannot sing. If you heard me sing, you would tell me to be quiet. I sound terrible. But I stand up here and I sing and praise because I don't care because I'm praising God. The simple analogy is it doesn't matter if you're working wholeheartedly, inspecting a situation, properly rested up to do the work of God. He's going to be with you, strengthen you, and give you favor. I once read an accomplished pastor say, 
And this is a quote, so don't throw tomatoes. In order to tell how successful a church is, you must not look to the building size. You must not look to the yearly budget, nor even the amount of people that show up on any given Lord's Day. Rather, the signs of a successful church is the amount of people willing to do the work. I must say that again, because I need to remind myself. The signs of a successful church is the amount of the people willing to do the work. Now, don't hear me, church. I'm not standing up here beating everybody over the head. What I am saying is that we are all the people of God, and just as Nehemiah expected the people of God to do the work of God, so too we are expected to do the work of God as the people of God. This was Nehemiah's expectation. And simultaneously, it's carried out in the New Testament as well. The work of God requires that the people of God get involved no matter what. The body of Christ cannot thrive if everyone is not all in. I equate this a lot with my family, and I don't mean to mention them a lot, but if we're as a family unit, six of us, or a clan as some people like to call us, baseball team, we're almost there, we got four. If we're not all working in the same direction and we're not all trying to bring God glory and we're not all trying to do the same thing, it's going to fracture, it's going to break because somebody's pulling in a different direction. You remember what happened when they lost the battle at Ai and Jerusalem was almost destroyed then, or Israel? Why did they lose? Because Achan stole when he was told not to because he was pleasing himself. And what did they have to do? They had to purge him out. Because he was going against the word of God. So if everybody's not all in working together, the body of Christ cannot thrive. Nehemiah had that expectation of the people that they would set their hand to the proverbial plow and not look back. I used to work at a hospital in Missouri. My boss, um, she was a unique lady. Um, I remember not long after I started there, she had asked me to do something that I felt was the responsibility of another. And knowing that she must have felt the same, simply replied with, well, that's not my job. <laughs> she goes, oh, well, for future reference, whatever I tell you is your job is your job, or you'll find a new one. I said, okay. Worked for her for four and a half years. <laughs> Point I'm trying to make here is that how the church attempts to work like that sometimes. Plenty of us say, well, pastor, it's not my job, or I've done my time as if we are in prison waiting for sweet release from their service to God. I don't know about y'all, but there are some days where I'm like, well, I have really done my time this week. I'm just going just gonna to hang out right here. <laughs> if the word of God says the people of God should be building together regardless of their level, status, expertise, should we all not be working together to accomplish that which God has laid before us? What did he lay before us? Bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth that means in America, too. Well, plenty of lost people in America. Not only that, we're supposed to love each other and love others. We cannot do that if we're all seeking different things. And I know we've got a lot going on. But we can't do the work of God if we're not together. But if everyone is moving in their own direction or assuming it's not their job, pretty soon that train is going to come off the tracks and wreck. Plenty, it happened to plenty of churches. Okay, I'm just, it's preemptive. Don't be like, well, he thinks we're not doing anything. That's not what it's about. It's about 
the people of God, just as they did in Nehemiah's day, seeking to work for God. So, you need rest, discretion, inspection, and we are not above the work of God. The fifth thing is the glory of God. He says to them, you see the bad situation we're in? That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Here's what it's all about. This is the main thing. If you don't get anything today, and I know I've said a lot, but if you don't get anything today, get this. This is what it's all about. Nestled in Nehemiah's explanation here about how bad things are and how they'd gone for him was all for one purpose. The glory of God. The glory of God. That's the purpose in everything. Creation for the glory of God. Adam and Eve for the glory of God. Marriage, children, bringing up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord for the glory of God. A church unified, seeking to move forward, to share the gospel, to love their neighbors and friends, exalting Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And that's what Nehemiah tells them. It's all for the glory of God. They didn't listen. God gave them the covenant. They continually broke it. He said he'd pass judgment and he would be right in doing so. They didn't listen and they ended up in exile, almost destroyed, cast out, cast away, a derision to the nations, treated with scorn and contempt. And worse yet still, as they were in Jerusalem, this was the holy city, God's city. God dwelt there. The temple of God was in shambles. All of it was burned by fire. And Nehemiah says, wake up. Do you see the bad situation we're in? Jerusalem is desolate, leveled to the ground almost, consumed by Babylon's fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Again, the state of God's people is a direct reflection of God. That's why when we claim we're Christian and we act silly outside of church, nobody looks at that and says, oh, I'm going to serve that God. I'm not going to lie. I have children. I have raised my voice. I get agitated and I get angry. Guess what, church? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. But if we seek forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and those we've wronged and continue moving forward, even if it's two steps back and one forward, at least you're going forward. But if you continue to go backwards and still claim to be a Christian, people of the world are going to look at that and say, ah, no thanks. They already have enough reason to hate God. God says, by nature, we're children of wrath. Don't, let's not give them any other reason. And Nehemiah is telling them, the status of what we got going on, the gates are burned, the walls are broken. You people are walking around sad and burdened. Come, let us build. Wake up and see what is around. And then Nehemiah tells them all that God had done for him and the king's favor, all of it. And what was their response? Man, come, let us arise and build. And they did. And not because it would increase their numbers. Okay, don't get me wrong. 
Everybody wants a church that's full. I get that. But that's still not the end result. God's glory is the end result. It's not so they could stand outside and go, man, look at that beautiful building. Yeah. It's a good thing. What did Jesus say, though, when the disciples were like, look, Jesus, how fancy the temple is. You see these stones? Not one will remain unturned. And what happened in 70 A.D.? Titus came and conquered Jerusalem and tore apart stone by stone so he could get the gold out of the wall. It's a building. You are the church. I am the church. It's not bad to be full. It's not bad to have a building. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if that's the focus, we've missed the point, and it's God's glory. His glory was the most important. That's what we're called to reflect, church. When you stand in the mirror, you're not supposed to see yourself and go, <laughs> wow. You're supposed to say, man, how can I serve God today? Where he would be lifted up and exalted, and somebody would point and say, man, that person's a sinner. They've messed up, but look how they keep trying to serve God and loving people. Now, I know I appear to pick on children a lot lately. It's okay, I have four. I do believe they're a gift from God. God says that in Psalm 127. However, if you ever had to deal with the inevitable argument on what they're going to build with their mess of Legos, you know how complicated this can be. But if God's people are constantly bickering about what I want to build or what you want to build, to be a problem if that's all we're fussing about the work of God will never get done not here if that's what we're going to fuss about and it, I'm quickly I got to share this with you I took a class on personal evangelism you go you're a pastor and a Christian you have to take a class it's required but anyway my my uh, professor told me that he went on this long trip with his wife to some music thing. Obviously, you know, that turned out for the guy. He was upset, just wanted to go home. But a long time, they ran out of gas, had to stop to get gas. And he said he felt conviction to share the gospel with the lady behind the counter. And he was upset because everything he had to contend with and said, I don't want to. And he said he kept feeling conviction, conviction. And he said, no, nope. I'm having a pity party. I'm not going to do the work of the Lord. He said just as he walked out of the gas station... A big burly guy that nobody would expect walked right in the door and said, Ma'am, I need to tell you about Jesus. I felt like the Lord was convicting me of that. So the work will get done. But don't you want to be a part of it? I do. When the people of God seek to do the work of God for the glory of God, the kingdom of God increases, and everything the church does should be evaluated by this standard. Everything. From what we sing to what we pray, to what we preach, to what we teach, to where we go, to the camps we do for kids, every bit of it should be evaluated by the Word of God for His glory. I'm going to move quickly. I know you've been gracious to me. The last thing He shows us, music to everybody's ears, the last thing is that the work of God, um, oh, yeah. Not only does it require rest, discretion, inspection by the people of God who are not above the work of God, and it's supposed to be done in His glory alone, but all of that is despite the enemies of God. 
you're going to face struggles. I tell my son this all the time. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist, you're still going to face struggles in this life. Verse 19 and 20. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king, Nehemiah? So I answered them and said to them, Notice how bold he is. Uh, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, no right, or memorial in Jerusalem. If you are an enemy of God, you have no portion, no right, and no memorial in all of the kingdom of God. I want us to notice something here, church, and I'll move quickly. Opposition does not just come when there's disunity, frustration, backbiting, gossip in the church. That's not the only time it comes. That's the only time we can seem to see it. It's already been there. Opposition from the enemies of God come when the people of God sit out to do the work of God after they've rested, exercised discretion and inspection. And if you remember, previously during the time of Ezra, it was told to Artaxerxes I that the Jews were in rebellion, attempting to rebuild by these same people to the same Persian king. And he stopped it at that time. And now the same fools are like Nehemiah. We've already done with this with Ezra 10, 12 years ago. You don't want us to have to send letters to the king, do you? I mean, I hate for you to get in trouble. Maybe they said they cared about him, but they probably didn't. I don't know what they said. I wasn't there. But they represent, hear me, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, three nations represent the contempt of the nations that came as a result of the curse mentioned in Deuteronomy 28. And in the 21st century, this can look a lot like fear of man. Oh no! They're going to make fun of me! I don't have any friends already! And you want me to share the gospel at school? Are you crazy? I'm just so busy, I've got other things to do. When Peter and John were taken into custody for healing a crippled man, they were scolded. How dare you teach in the name of this Jesus? What was their response? But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have heard and seen. I think as the people of God, we tend to forget that if God is for us, who could be against us? Just, just think about the stress Nehemiah was dealing with. Inside, outside, he's building a wall, but that wasn't the end result. He sought to move forward and build them up spiritually. And he's got all this stuff, and his response is, yeah, I don't really care what you say. God's going to give us favor, so we're going to arise and do the work of God despite you. He, God of heaven, would give them favor. And if you and me, we rest in Christ, we stop chasing the world, we stop chasing all the things that don't matter that are going to be gone one day anyway. You were born in your birthday suit and you're going to go out in the same way with nothing more, nothing less. It's a matter of the, what you do with the time God has given you. Jesus said in this life you will have trouble. Again, whether you believe in him or not. You're going to have trouble, 
They hated him and killed him. How much more will they hate us for loving him if we're doing the work of God? Jesus also finished that by saying, take courage. That means rise up, be strong, take courage. Why? He said, because he overcame the world. And if you rest in him, you will too. So to finish out, the work of God requires rest, discretion, and inspection by the people of God for the glory of God despite the enemies of God. If we do not seek the glory of God in all that we do, and I don't mean just in the church. Paul said, whether you eat or drink, all of it to the glory of God. We will fail. And the one thing we're supposed to aim for, and that's the glory of the Lord. Nehemiah understood the task was great, but he exercised his leadership abilities by focusing his mind and mission on the work of God for the glory of God. The people of God... And he had no fear of the enemies of God. He knew that the God of heaven would give them success. Jesus said, fear not he who can destroy your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul and cast them into eternal hell. Meaning, who cares about man? They're always going to do you wrong. But Jesus Christ, the Lord, he has the power over where you spend eternity. Don't miss this. Nehemiah came to build the wall despite the enemies so that they would no longer be a derision, so God would get glory. But he did it knowing that eventually the purpose was the fulfillment of God's covenant, which would ultimately culminate in Jesus Christ. Stay the course, and who cares about God's enemies? Eventually they're going to be neutralized. The Bible says that... Uh, the Lord knows the way of the wicked, but, or excuse me, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's a nasty word in the Hebrew. It's going to be painful and it's going to be frustrating. Church, I'm going to pray for you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, Him alone, through faith alone, don't leave here today without that. Um, but let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close out this morning. Father, I pray for your goodness and your mercy to go before us all the days of our life. Lord, that we would cherish spending a day in your gates than in eternity in this world. Father, I pray for those that uh, have heard your word today. Father, I pray that your spirit would just take it and bury it deep in their soul and their heart and convict them of truth. Father, I pray that as the people of God, we would rest not only in Jesus, but we'd physically rest. We'd rest emotionally and mentally. We turn the world off for just a little bit, Father, and recuperate, reevaluate, inspect our situation, and know where there needs to be fixes. And Lord God, I pray that after that we do that, your spirit would apply that fix to our lives. And then, Lord, that we would arise in boldness and newness of life to continue to do the work of God, seeking your glory above all things, regardless and despite the enemies. Lord, they will come and they will go. Lord, please be with us as we go forward this week.